This morning we're talking about Noah and the activities of a faithful father. And after our introduction, we'll consider his listening, leading, providing, and preaching. The Bible gives us pictures, analogies, metaphors to help us understand who God is, what he is doing, and what he is going to do. In Noah's day, God decided to destroy all of mankind by a flood because they had become corrupt. Noah was told to build an ark for his family and for the animals that would be saved. And in this account of Noah's flood, we see God's holiness, we see God's grace, we see God's wrath, and we see God's faithfulness. The description of life on the earth at that time should be of interest to us because we are told in the New Testament that in the days preceding the second coming of Christ, things will be as they were in the days of Noah. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. God saved Noah and his family in the ark. We are saved in Christ. There's a passage in Isaiah that underlines our Savior, and it's written with a rather sovereign tone. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am He. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? That's comforting to know that what God said will happen is going to happen because he has all power and all authority. And when he speaks it, it comes to pass. There were evidently a lot of strange gods in Noah's day because the true faith had come down to just one family. And perhaps we should not be surprised that today people are eating and drinking and celebrating and going on with life with no thought for God's claim upon their lives. This morning, we want to understand how a father could keep the faith in such a way that his sons would buy into this preposterous and laborious strategy to confront a non-existent event that no one could even envision at that time. A flood where you couldn't get to higher ground because there wouldn't be any. Now couple that with the sensuality of a corrupt culture that had a lot of pleasure to offer young men, and you can see that Noah did an amazing job of rearing his sons in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in times of adversity. 
He must have captured their hearts early so that they would be faithful to the task. And it was an amazing feat of construction that Noah and his boys were able to accomplish. Turn in your Bibles, if maybe you're there in Genesis. Look at the first verse in chapter 7. First verse in chapter 7, The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. If you're beginning to comprehend the challenge of rearing godly children, even in conservative circles, in the day in which we live, think about what was going on in Noah's day. Wickedness in the earth was great. Noah's dad, Lamech, of the Sethite lineage, had died five years before the flood. Lamech's dad, Methuselah, which would have been Noah's grandfather, died in the year of the flood. Not in the flood, but in the year of the flood. Enoch, Noah's great-grandfather, had been taken up to heaven without the experience of death. So it looks like by the time Noah is building the ark, There's no one left on the earth in the true faith. So much for fellowship with other believers. You see how nice we have it in the day in which we live. Well, then there was the task of designing and building and gathering materials and stockpiling food and provisions and all of those things that would take, we presume, from from chapter 6, verse 3, 120 years you know it would take a long time to do everything that had to be done to build that ark. It was an enormous task for which there was no apparent need. Talk about vision on the part of Dad, who's going to have to sell this idea to the boys. Yeah, guys, I was out talking with God the other day, and let me share with you what He told me. You can imagine what that would sound like. Then there was the ridicule and mockery of all of the people who thought this was a tremendous joke, and I'm sure it was pretty intense in that day. And then in chapter 7, verse 4, if you're there, we see that Noah and his family were in the ark seven days before the flood began. Now that would test your faith, just sitting there waiting, wondering if it were going to really come to pass. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, Genesis and Time and Space, comments on that. What a picture of Christian faith this is. It's not that there were no propositional promises. It's not that there were no good and sufficient reasons to know that the things are true. But faith is standing against what is seen at the moment and being willing to be out on the end of a limb in believing God. It's not a a leap. It's not a denial of rationality but it is sitting in this boat out in the middle of dry land when most people say it just doesn't make any sense. If any generation has ever been in this situation, it is ours. Most people, many people would say that what we have gathered to do this morning and to talk about just doesn't make any sense. Even if they would go along with religion, they probably wouldn't go along with creation and the Genesis flood. According to Scripture, we see the faith of a righteous, committed father 
and how that accrues blessing not only for him as an individual, but for his wife and his children. Look in verse 9, Noah is described as a righteous, blameless man, or your translation might say just, perfect man. All that means is that he conformed to God's standards of righteousness. Not perfectly, but he was committed to going in that direction in his life. And then when it says he was perfect, that means that he was complete, he was mature in every aspect of his life. So because of his righteousness, his family was blessed in such a way beyond every other family in the world at that time. It was not because his righteousness was meritorious that God owed him something, and he was not morally perfect, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, just as we do. In God's plan, boyhood and girlhood are times in life when a young man learns to be a mature, a boy learns to be a mature young man, and a young lady grows to be a mature young woman if they are being taught by their culture, by their church, or by their families. Unfortunately, in our culture, many little boys are expected to be more mature than the big brothers and their fathers. You're too young to smoke. You're too young to watch R-rated movies. You're too young to drink beer, or whatever it might be. But then as they grow older, they see that we don't get much help from the culture. And sometimes we don't get much help from churches that have been influenced by postmodern deconstructionists. They believe that you don't discover truth, you construct truth. And you see, what was written in the Bible would mean something very different to the apostles than it would to us. This is what they say. So when Christ told Peter, James, and John to take up your cross daily and follow me, that would mean something very different to them than it would to us today. You have to choose your own meaning because words and sentences have no inherent truth in them. And then there's something else you have to do. For instance, the truth that was constructed by the Puritans 400 years ago now has to be deconstructed so that the ideological biases of gender and race, economic, political, cultural, traditional assumptions can be eliminated. Then you and I can be free from old patriarchal white men who constructed Christianity in their image so they would be in power and able to oppress women, free spirits, and the Indians. The deconstructionists say the then of the Bible has lost any relevance to the now of our modern lives. Now, clearly, there was much cruelty and oppression in history, but don't blame it on the Bible. The objective truth is there. Men may not have applied the Bible consistently at every point in history, but many did. Don't blame it on the Puritans either. They did a pretty good job of following what was in the Scripture. Well, that's what's happening in churches across our land. If the culture is against the family and the church doesn't help, what is the hope? 
It's dad. It's the father. A godly man, a loving husband, an understanding parent, a diligent provider. Today we look at a man in Scripture who accomplished an amazing feat incomparable in his day. Noah was born 126 years after Adam died. He lived for 950 years and died when Abraham was 58 years old. He and Abraham weren't together, but that kind of gives you some idea of the flow of history at that time. Noah was a man who was committed to listening. To help with the great task of building the boat he'd been given, God told him something of the final judgment that was coming. That would be pretty good motivation. There is a sense of urgency there. We've got to get the boat built. Well, we're told that the next time around, judgment is coming. And when life gets to be corrupt, as it was in the days of Noah, it may be coming pretty soon. Do we dads or anyone have a sense of urgency to carry the gospel message, to make sure that we are that righteous and mature man that God is calling on us to be. Somehow, with God's help, Noah devised a way to keep his team on board during all that time of building. There were a lot of things going on back then, just like there are now, to pull at a young man's heart. Henry Morris, in his book, The Genesis Record, talks about some of the comparisons of life now with life back then. And he gives a scripture reference that's very specific. I'm not going to read all the references, but he talks about preoccupation with physical appetites, rapid advances in technology. You remember the metallurgy and animal husbandry, things, things that were going on back then. Grossly materialistic attitudes and interests, uniformitarian philosophies, inordinate devotion to pleasure and comfort. Uh, we could score on that one in our culture. No concern for God in belief or conduct. Disregard for the sacredness of marriage and the marriage relation. Rejection of the inspired Word of God. Population explosion. Widespread violence. Corruption throughout society. Preoccupation with illicit sexual activity. Widespread words and thoughts of blasphemy. Organized satanic activity. Promulgation of systems and movements of abnormal depravity. Well, don't get discouraged. There's sunshine in my soul. God's people are going to be on the boat. What an experience that might have been. Noah was a man who had learned how to listen. We have evidence of that with so many voices calling and the overload of electronic media. To what should a dad be listening? Well, he better be listening to his wife because he has to live with her in an understanding way so that his prayers would not be hindered. He better be listening to his children, understanding their needs. I don't mean listening to them as they dictate what the family is going to do, but he is responsible for bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He has to be listening to his employer or his customers because he's earning a living for the family. He has to listen to the government. They control many facets of his life. Now, if the government tells him to do something that's against Scripture, he doesn't have to obey the government but he does have to listen to the government. More importantly, he has to listen to God because God's the one that's going to give him the grace to listen to all of these voices 
and to address all of these needs in a dad's life and to be able to do it the same way Noah did it. So it might be said he was a righteous man in his generation. Now let's take a look in verse 13. Here was the instruction that God gave to Noah. The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. There would be only one way out. Make an ark of gopher wood. Now, was Noah listening carefully? Sometimes we're listening, but we're not hearing. But Noah was hearing. Because we're told in verse 22, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. And God really wants us to understand, and Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. How narrow-minded can you get, some people say. You're telling me you've got to do everything God commands you? That must be the God of the Old Testament. Some wrathful tribal deity that's going to rain down retribution, fire out of the sky on people if they disobey. Well, a lot of people would think the New Testament God, Jesus, He's not that way. That it's just um, kind of a universal thing now. Well, there is a universal offer of the Gospel. But here's what Christ says. As we consider everything that's out there in the world, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. Sounds kind of narrow-minded, doesn't it? You see, everybody couldn't be right. Either Christ is right or, or He's not. But I think He is. Testimony of everything backs it up. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Do you see the analogy to the ark? The ark was the only way of salvation in Noah's day. Salvation in Christ is the only way that we will be delivered in this day. Now God gave Noah some very precise instructions for building the boat. And we'll be taking a look. He better be listening. There were no nautical engineers in that day that had built a boat of that size. In the New Testament, God gives very detailed instructions for what we should be doing, what children should be doing, what Christians should be doing, what moms and dads should be doing. We see the example of Christ in the Gospels, how these things are to be applied, and then we're told how to do it in the epistles. So with the Holy Spirit guiding us, we are able to do what God has called upon us to do. But culture is against us. It's not going to be an easy task. The family is going to be the fighting unit in God's army. Dad is the platoon leader, and he's under the command of King Jesus. Not King James, King Jesus. Now, it's good to read the King James Bible. I love the King James Bible. I'm reading out of it today. But we've got to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And we can't be a dad who just has devotion times. 
It's got to be seen in the attitudes of our hearts and the way we conduct our business, in the speech that comes out of our mouths, the edifying talk to build others up that we learned about in the previous hour. The talk has got to match the walk, as we say. What determines the quality of attentiveness to God that a father is able to accomplish? A father or anyone else? Are you listening to God? What determines whether or not you're going to really be hearing Him? It depends on the attitude of your heart and making kingdom matters a top priority in your life. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. If your treasure is listening to the Lord, you're going to be into it. I don't mean you're going to be walking around everywhere with a Bible in front of your face, but it's going to be on your heart and on your mind. You'll be giving yourself to it. If your hobby is the treasure of your heart, you'll be giving yourself to your hobby. I'm not saying we shouldn't have hobbies. I'm just saying it's a matter of priorities. Not only that, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things that the world is chasing will be added unto you, all the things that you need, perhaps not all the things that you want. Noah was listening to the Lord. Dad will be listening to whatever occupies first place in his heart. If it's business, it'll be business. And second place, and third place. And if the wife and children are down about 14th, we're going to lose the battle for that day. And eventually, we'll lose the war. Well, we come to leading. Noah and his sons were focused on one main task, building the boat. They had other things to do, but that was the hope for the family, building the boat. It had to be done or the family couldn't be saved. Suppose, dads, you had to convince your sons that in the next 120 months, if that's too long, take 120 weeks. Next 120 weeks, you got to dig an underground bunker and you've got to provide it with food and uh, ventilation and water and everything because God is going to send a fire on the surface of the earth. And by the way, there's got to be room for two of every animal in the San Antonio Zoo and a few that aren't in the zoo. How do you think uh, you'd be able to give the vision for that kind of task? That's going to take some leadership. And that's where the process begins. Someone has to have the vision for wherever the family's going and give that vision to the family. That's the head coach, the dad, typically, the head coach. And he's telling the assistant coach, mom, and he's telling all the players what they're going to do. Now, keep in mind that there is a fire coming, but an underground bunker is not going to do any good. Only Christ is going to be able to save us. So we see the urgency of the gospel. Do children understand the gospel? We can't save their soul, but we can provide the means that the Holy Spirit would use. Do they really have a thorough understanding? What about that teenager? Is he really saved, as we say? Is he really committed to Christ? Or is he just kind of doing the family thing, the church thing, but down in his heart, he really has a bad attitude. We live in times where there is a sense of urgency because the culture is looking to pull sons and daughters off 
to be committed to the other side of the battle. This is a tremendous task that God has given us. It's not just an intellectual belief system. It's a lifestyle. And see, sons and daughters can see the lifestyle. So they can hear what's coming out of our mouths. They can tell if it's something that is really real. It's difficult to sell anything if you have an angry spirit. How can you tell that everyone is committed to the team? How can you tell when you really have a team in your family? Well, I'll tell you that any progress that you make may be imperceptible to the team members, but to everybody else, they'll be able to see it maybe more readily than just the players on the team. So it's up to Dad to spot these trends and to bring in some things that are going to be helpful. Here would be two things I would say when there's really a team functioning to accomplish the vision. First would be when the hearts of team members are turned toward each other and toward the dad. That's the coach. The hearts of team members are turned toward each other and they're turned toward the dad. The second would be this. When each team member is fully committed to the team's vision and believes that they will win if they obey the coach. That things are going to go well in life if I'm following the direction of the coach. Now, if the coach is going in the wrong direction, that's, that's a sad thing. You've got to follow the Scriptures then, but it's not going to be a team. It's going to be some people who are maybe at each other's throats if it gets that bad. We have some questions for team leaders and for those who desire to lead. Will you be ready to lead when a crisis comes? The disciples were asleep, you remember. Woke them up, went to sleep, woke them up, went to sleep. Too late. The crisis is here. What kind of a leader will you be what kind of a leader are you now? Are you lording it over them like the Gentiles, or are you the servant of all? How well have you learned the ministry of serving others? There's a lot about that in the Scripture. What's your attitude toward those who are in a positive, who, excuse me, are in a position of leadership over you? How well do you respond to authority? And finally, what's your attitude? toward criticism. What kind of a leader are you now? Positive, upbeat, encouraging, servant of all, harsh, dictatorial, ungrateful, laid back, relaxed, just let it happen if it will. I don't know if it's going to happen by itself, training in godliness. Are you critical, negative, always on somebody's case about something? And then, what's your attitude? How about the boys with Noah having to haul all those timbers. He must have somehow gotten them on board because they stayed with the task. What if they'd bailed out? You get some local reprobates you could hire to do the job, but I don't know, they're probably living to sundown and payday, and I don't know they'd do the quality work that you'd want done on the ark. So he's got to keep the boys on board. Well, that last one, King David gives us some good advice. What's your attitude toward criticism? Criticism is a special gift that God gives to leaders. You might think that criticism doesn't look like much of a gift. That's because it comes in a bad mouth sandwich. Two slices of discontent on the outside and a little bit of accuracy, a little dab somewhere in the middle. And it's your job to range around in there and find the accuracy. 
It's like Winston Churchill said, I do not resent criticism, even when for the sake of emphasis it parts for a time with reality. Well, you find the accuracy and you relish that little morsel. Of course, sometimes it seems like the entire sandwich is a departure from reality. And it may be, but we've got to look carefully at accurate negative feedback. It's a rare commodity in any position in life. King Saul didn't want it. He didn't want it from Jonathan, David, Abiathar. He didn't want it from anybody. And you see what happened to him. Now, you know what to do because you've heard it before. You have to get used to the guys who utilize a thin disguise to minimize and criticize the other guys whose enterprise has made them rise above the guys who criticize. That's kind of a mouthful, but that's the way life goes. So if you're getting some criticism, that can be a good thing. That, is, uh, that means God wants you to pay attention to something. Maybe the needs in a person's life. Maybe something in your life that's being pointed out. Don't you know that Noah and his guys had some fellows who would criticize without any disguise at all? And I'm sure there was a lot of ridicule and a lot of just sheer opposition where the priest, the pagan priest, would not want Noah to pull anybody away to the true religion. Well, how did he do it, this boat building? By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not yet as, not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Two things I see there. One, he's walking in faith. He's believing things that he can't see yet in the future, that they are going to happen like God said, and he's walking in the fear of of God. In Noah's case, he's got to get the job done. It's a huge task. It's really a floating box that he's building. 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet, 95,700 square feet of deck space, slightly more than 20 standard college basketball courts. 1,396,000 cubic feet of cargo space. That would be 522 double-decked livestock railroad cars. There's a lot of room in there for the animals. See, it isn't enough for Noah just to get involved with his children, take them on picnics, take them to little league games. All that's good. It's a lot of fun. We want to do those things. But there is a project. They had to build a boat. What are you building? What does your family have to build? It doesn't have to be a structure. We had to tear down a couple of railroad stations and build a house. But in the process, we learned that it wasn't the house God was building. It was the the dad and the family that God was working on. Suppose dad is just missing in action. Suppose dad is out of the loop. Well, we're not without hope. God is a father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in His holy habitation. Come down to section D, providing. Genesis 6.21, And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them, and that would be the animals. Now, they got to provide groceries for themselves and for the animals for 371 days, plus seven days that they're sitting in the ark waiting 
for the water to come. That's a pretty long time. How much does one elephant eat in a year? I don't know. It must be a pretty good bit. But there is a solution to that. John Whitcomb and Henry Morris gives a solution in his book, The Genesis Flood. And the answer is, of course, the remarkable physiological ability of most animals to suspend eating for a time in a state of hibernation. Now, I don't know exactly how God did it, but I believe that he did it just like the Bible said that he did it. And that would be a simple explanation for how he could have done it. Well, we certainly have to eat, but there's something that a father provides that affects every aspect of the life of a son or daughter. And in some instances, it may be even more important than food. What would it be? Well, it would be the faith. It would be communicating the faith to sons and daughters and communicating it with a good attitude. Training and instruction in godliness and an attitude toward most everything in life. You get it in the home. The last section, preaching. Here's an observation regarding the difficulty of the task confronting Noah. He was not just out on the back 40 of his estate behind a high fence building an ocean-going vessel almost the exact dimensions of the Great Eastern which laid the first Atlantic cable. She was the largest ship ever built at the time of her launch in 1858 with the exception of Noah's Ark if you use the 24-inch cubit. We don't know if it was 18-inch, 24. If you take the 24, then that was the largest ship This ship in 1858 was the largest one since the ark. Well, Noah wasn't hiding out behind a wall. He was a preacher of righteousness. The New Testament tells us, and God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, during all the 120 years... We presume Noah was giving out the message, probably even before that. A preacher with a powerful message, but no Bible. But he had the Word of God. Maybe he had the book of Adam that we were talking about, if there was such a thing. At any rate, Noah had the message, and he was fearless in delivering the message. How many converts did he have outside his own family? We'd say, that's a pretty unsuccessful preacher. That guy's a failure. He didn't have a single convert outside his own family. But keep in mind what God told Moses. Deuteronomy 29, 4. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. He's talking to the Israelite people who are coming out of Egypt. The Lord is the one that touches the hearts But nobody was getting it in Noah's day. Have you ever heard of Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah? It was the same thing with them. Deaf ears, the message fell on deaf ears. So there might be another way to measure true success. We're all about numbers. We want to see this church bursting at the seams. But true success might be measured by faithfulness. Faithfulness to your life calling. Every dad has a calling to be a dad and to be a preacher of righteousness to his family. 
faithful to follow accurate biblical instruction. You've got to get some accurate biblical instruction. And praise the Lord, it's available in our land. Faithfulness to obey God and live an exemplary life. Underline that live an exemplary, exemplary life because your life message preaches a lot louder than the sermon, especially with sons and daughters. They are looking at that life message. So if dad's trying to sell the vision of children getting on board with a Christian home, living out Christian values, if he doesn't practice right attitudes and right living, children may bail out of the boat even before the storm begins. What is dad to preach? Just the gospel? Well, no, there's something more. Paul told the elders of the Ephesian church, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We've got to go through the Old Testament. We've got to get back into prophets. We've got to look at Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. We want to have the whole counsel of God. Noah was a type of Christ. There are many interesting comparisons, but the final conclusion is dads should be a type of Christ. We could see a lot of things that were similar with Noah and Christ, but we want to see a lot of things today that are similar between dad and Christ. That's what the family wants to see. Who gave dads the job? That's the question. Well, if God gave it to you, then there's going to be a need for some listening and leading and providing and preaching. And that's what we would hope in this church to equip you to do. And remember, we saw Noah was motivated by faith and by a fear of God. It's pretty simple when you get down to it. Trust and obey. Well, we're talking this morning not only to faithful fathers, but to faithful Christians. Can you see how this differs just from intellectual belief, building a boat? A little different from reading about boats in a book. So if you're not in the faithful father category, we trust that you will be in the faithful Christian category. Because there's only one other category, and that's the unbeliever category. And you remember many came to Christ on that last day and said, Hey, we're on the team here. We've done good works. We taught Sunday school. We cast out demons, whatever they did. And Christ said, Depart from me. I never knew you. You're not in the boat. That would be a tragic thing. Let's be sure that we are in the ark with Christ. Take some time right now to stop and take inventory of your life and what's in your heart. It's pretty simple. We have all broken God's law and we all have a bad record. But one man, Jesus Christ, had a perfect record. And he's willing to swap that bad record, my bad record, for his perfect record. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf that I might be the righteousness of God in him. But it takes a transaction to do that. It takes trust in God's word. That's the believing and then it takes repenting of sin, asking forgiveness, and submitting to 
God's authority. Now, some people will say, well, wait, that last part, you don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is, is believe. But I think there is believing and receiving. John 1.12, we close with this verse. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. It's much more than an intellectual belief. It's accepting Christ to come into my life to be my king and to govern my life and to help me make decisions and to give me the power to choose the right thing to do and to give me the understanding to tell what's right and what's wrong. But I guess most of all, to give me an attitude down inside that wants to do what the Bible says, to honor father and mother, to take up my cross and follow Christ. There are this many things that the Bible is telling us about. But if Christ is in my heart, I will have a desire to live for Him and to move in His direction. I'm not receiving a fire insurance policy. I'm receiving the Lord God Almighty into my life to live for Him, to be a soldier in His gospel army. I would encourage you to look at your own heart right now as I pray. And if you know that you're not really living that way, maybe you believe in God with all your heart. Maybe you believe He sent Jesus' His Son to die. But you've never really made that commitment to Him. This would be a good time to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the things that we see in the Scripture good and bad, <clears throat> some things pretty scary. And Lord, I can barely fathom the thought of every man, woman, child, living creature being destroyed upon the earth except this one family. But I know that it's coming again and those who don't truly know Christ will be caught up in the conflagration. Father, I pray that we might examine our hearts at this moment. And I pray, Lord, that if someone here is not truly in the ark with Christ, that this would be the time, that this would be the moment, that this would be the day of revelation. And we thank You, Holy Spirit, that You're powerful to work in our hearts. We ask You, Holy Spirit, for the salvation of sons and daughters, that you would touch their hearts with regeneration. And we pray that we as moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandparents, that we might lay forth the means of grace before these young people, that the Holy Spirit would have plenty of ammunition with which to work. Thank you for this time today. Thank you for this study. Help us to take it to heart. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.